Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Nitza Fasharafi, a visionary architect and urbanist who will revolutionize the way you see urban ensembles. As the founder of Urban Inclusion, a groundbreaking consulting firm, Safa is leading the charge in championing gender, diversity and inclusive urban landscapes. Safa's passion lies in creating sustainable cities that leave no one behind, supported by a wealth of academic knowledge and over a decade of practical experience. With her sharp focus on gender and inclusion, she aims to reshape the urban environments to cater to the diverse needs of all residents. Having lived in various countries, from the vibrant streets of Morocco to the bustling cities of Canada, Denmark, Austria, Spain and Turkey, Safa brings a truly global perspective to her work. Get ready to be inspired as Safa Sharafi takes us on a thrilling journey through the world of gender-inclusive urban development. Safa, welcome to Energetic. Thank you so much, Marine. Thanks for having me. So, Sava, could you share with us your personal journey and what motivated you to become an advocate for gender-inclusive cities and urban settlements, urban development? That's actually a really good question that I get asked a lot. So, I'm an architect. I studied architecture in Morocco. I worked as a project manager at a big investment firm at the beginning of my career. And we were setting this resort in the northeast of Morocco on the border with Algeria which was, yeah, it was a resort, an impoverished uh, area. And I soon realized the unintended effects of my work there. So I quit. <laughs> I pursued a master's uh, in urban studies called Four Cities. And that's also the reason why I lived in so many places, because I attended six universities. And that's when I discovered about urban governance, urban sociology, urban economics, politics, and and. It was a brand new field for me as an architect who basically was just thinking about design and how to make things stand and be aesthetic in, in the city. The thing is also on a more of a personal side is that I grew up in Morocco, which is, let's say, a little bit patriarchal. <laughs> and I also soon realized that my gender or the body that I had was dictating how I navigate the city and uh, how I use the city, how I'm supposed to dress up, how I'm supposed to move around, where I'm supposed to be, not be, if I'm supposed to take space or not at all. And then I arrived here in Europe um, a couple of years ago. And that's when I realized that my ethnicity, my migration status, my nationality, all of it also sort of like dictated how I can navigate the city or not and the places I was welcome or included in or excluded from. And so throughout my career, I witnessed the stark gender disparities that exist in our urban environments, but also beyond that even. Um, and that's what inspired me to take action and to think of more of this intersectional approach. So maybe a quick or brief uh, explanation of what intersectionality is. It's a framework in, in sociology that's now used beyond to uh, talk about the different social identities that shape our 
privileges and, and oppression, so be it race, age, gender, sexual orientation, etc. etc. So yeah, I, I strongly believe that cities should be designed for everyone, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of their social status or class. And, and that should also provide equal opportunities for all residents, which is not really happening now. And that's what motivated me to become an advocate and work towards creating more inclusive and equitable cities. Yeah, indeed, uh, you were experienced as a professional, but also mm -hmm. as a woman coming from Morocco, you really experienced what it is to be discriminated against because of, of what you are. And that really makes sense and make your message, your advocacy work really more powerful somehow, because you can talk from from yourself, really from the heart and, and not only from detached perspective. So, so that's really, that's really also what made me want to talk with you because indeed that's not every day that we have people who just say, look, uh, I've been experiencing this situation and I am an expert in this, in this topic. I'm a real expert in this topic. So, so let's, let's start this conversation. Let's, let's kick off because maybe you don't realize what I see, but I see it and it's here, it's here to stay. And um, the look I have on the situation is very different from the one you may have from your perspective, which may or may be an every tower. I'm not, uh, I'm not blaming anybody, of course, but uh, it's, it's really like everybody has their bias and you understand that the bias can it can be there and that's that's really really interesting so what are really in your experience some of the the really uh, the key challenges and barriers that you have noticed or that you have assessed that are here to that are remaining and that prevent Uh, from achieving inclusiveness in your brain context? And uh, how do you address them through your work? I think that achieving inclusiveness in, in urban contexts can be a complex task, especially when we talk about intersectionality, because bringing it to politics is a, is a challenge. It is a tough exercise. And I think one of the key challenges is the deeply entrenched social norms the gender stereotypes, whether we're talking about North America or Europe um, or Africa or the Middle East, doesn't really matter. Throughout the world and globally, we still have um, gender inequality. That's, that's, uh, but I think that also influences urban planning and design. Um, there's also the lack of representation, the lack of participation of, margin, of marginalized groups in decision-making processes. And I guess you know the, the book Invisible Women uh, by Caroline Criado Perez. This feminist researcher said in her book, the world is designed mostly by men with mostly other ma men in mind. So it's not that they're the ones that, well, first of all, they're mostly the ones taking decisions and making decisions about the city and policies and, and politics, but it's also that they have other men in mind. And it's also the whole biases that we have, affinity biases, that if we're going to think of people like us first and not people that have completely different experiences than us. So this create this gender-based data gap that has been known to exist for a very long time. Um, it's what we call the male bias data. And it has affected the living experiences of women in ways that are often felt, seen, but not talked about. And obviously this also holds in our cities and our built environments um, where women are often disadvantaged. 
by existing infrastructures. And I mean, there's a lot of numbers uh, when it comes to sexual harassment or gender-based violence, when it comes to uh, resources or access to resources, when it comes to even the ratio of women architects versus male architects, the ones that go into architectural programs are a much higher rate, actually, uh, they're women, but they only make, like, uh, I think in the US, the number that comes through is like half of the students in architectural programs in the US are women, but they only make up 17% of registered architects. So one would wonder, like, where do they go? <laughs> but also the way men and women interact with the environment in very different ways, the way that spaces are designed with different needs in mind, which are going to be usually men. The um, UN, in one of their reports, I think it was in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, reported that gender-blind infrastructure fails to consider the different roles and responsibilities and needs of women, men, girls, and boys in a specific context, and that affects their ability to use or as- access infrastructure. So we also have the gender mobility patterns, what we call Ines Sanchez de la Madariaga, who's a, also a feminist urbanist and one of my role models uh, that I also interviewed for my thesis. She calls it the mobility of care. And mobility of care is how, um, so there is a lot of data about this, but women tend to do, first of all, uh, multi-purpose journeys or shorter um, multiple journeys, while men would have a more of a linear journey. So from work uh, to, from home to work, from work to home. Women would tend to either pick up the kids, pay bills, do the groceries and go to work, then go home. Like it's, it's a very different mobility pattern. And that also creates for different needs. Women are also more likely to walk, to take public transport, because also, once again, globally, the majority of car drivers are men. (laughs) There are a lot of examples of of how this male contribution, um, sorry, the the male domination in urban planning is reflected in the built environment and in the city. And it has this unintended effect on women and girls and on marginalized groups. And by marginalized, I mean anyone who is not a abled body white man, <laughs> a young one also, because we're also not thinking of the elderly in the city. So yeah, when we talk about the narrowness of streets, when we talk about, uh, so women cannot uh, use their strollers, or when we talk about the lights, when we, and it's a lot of examples like this that make cities not made for women or marginalized groups. Yeah, I've been noticing this situation as a young mom, you know, it's really hard to navigate mm-hmm. your city when you have a stroller, yeah. whether it is because, say, there is no red light to, to cross the street or maybe because the sidewalk is broken or for whatever reason. And that's really one of the, let's say, the, one of those kind of eye-opening situations. We had a long time ago in this podcast, actually, a conversation about public transport and how to really make them inclusive. And that was also about accessibility to, to people with different abilities and whether it is temporary or permanent. But uh, yeah, some, something that I've also came to, to understand through some previous reads and, and discussion, etc., is that even there is also a huge class aspect in the way cities are designed. For instance, if we think of renovating a full neighborhood, maybe when you will do all this kind of uh, retrofitting, you will also do some gentrifying, which 
will mean that the marginalized population will be even more marginalized because they will be put on really on the outskirts of the city, which is even less equipped with the public transportation or quality public infrastructure or or sidewalks, etc. And and one of the I'm referring exactly to a, to actually a book that I read by Leslie Kern which is called uh, Feminist City, which says that when you retrofit a city, usually you think of the uh, middle-class white woman. So even when you want to put women kind of first as really beneficiaries, you also have to acknowledge that it's not because it will benefit one kind of woman, that it will be benefiting all kinds of women. And really, I find this conversation really so eye-opening this kind of, of analysis is so eye-opening. So do you have like any kind of uh, recommendation on getting beyond only gender main- mainstreaming, but really be- go to uh, some form of, uh, as you said, intersectional approach to urban development and why, and explain also why it's so critical in developing those kind of initiatives. And maybe you have examples too. Yeah, certainly. Um, you're right. Like social class and gentrification are complex issues. They significantly impact the urban environment, but also communities that live there. And these challenges are often very diverse. They also require a much more comprehensive strategy. So when it comes to social class cities, they're often facing inequalities in access to uh, resources, to services, to, to public transport, to housing. That's, I think, the the, the most uh, issue in, in these neighborhoods, that lower income communities are going to often bear the, the brunt of inadequate uh, infrastructure to uh, a much limited access to quality education, to healthcare, and once again, non-affordable housing options. And I mean, this is even on a global uh, scale. I think it's like a lot of people would think, oh, but what does healthcare or education have to do with it? It has to do a lot with the politics of the city and what we decide as as um, decision makers or policymakers to put in a neighborhood. And all of these are political decisions. And these disparities, obviously, in the city can perpetuate cycles of poverty, of exclusion. They exacerbate the social inequalities within the cities. That's why we have cities with huge differences in, in, in neighborhoods of like well-off people living in one neighborhood and, and yeah, more usually ethnic communities living in much poorer neighborhoods. And gentrification, on the other hand, is this process where higher income individuals or businesses like we see now uh, with barber shops and cafes and that I have anything against it, but they're going to invest in and, and they transform these low income neighborhoods, which in the short term can seem like it can bring this positive change. Like we have um, a revitalized urban area. I also read The Feminist City by Leslie Kern and I simply loved it. <laughs> I really liked also the fact that she lived in, in Toronto and yeah, like I did. And, and I think that's I mean, in a lot of neighborhoods there, like you see maybe improved infrastructure and the revitalization of this part of the city. But in the long term, it can also lead to the displacement of long-term residents, to them losing their cultural identity, to increased living costs. So people cannot afford living in that neighborhood anymore. So that's what gentrification would do. It displaces lower-income communities. It disrupts the social network that was existing there. And it creates extra challenges 
that are once again related to housing affordability and social cohesion. It's not fixing the problem in itself when we want to say, oh, let's move into that poor neighborhood so we can bring in work and business and, and, and money. It's not really how it works if we don't have a policy that's protecting the people that were um, there in the first place. And I think to answer your question about solutions, to address these sort of challenges, it's really important to have a comprehensive approach. How it would look like this kind of comprehensive approach? Do you have any toolkit for local policymakers? <laughs> a toolkit? I think that's, uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways how to do it, but it definitely you need this uh, this inclusive approach in urban development and, and, and policymaking, which we don't have most often. It begins with recognizing and acknowledging the diverse needs and experiences of these communities across different social classes. So you need meaningful community engagement, participatory design, or simple in simple terms, just making people participate in decision-making to make sure that their voices or that they have a voice actually in shaping urban development processes and policies, which would in turn foster the sense of ownership they, that would empower these communities to advocate also for their needs and aspirations. But most of the time, we don't even ask them what they want. We don't even ask them what they need. So these policy interventions and regulation would play a, a vital role in, in, in mitigating the negative impacts of, of gentrification, of, of exclusion in the city. So implementing also measures to protect affordable housing stock, like I said earlier, to provide rent stabilization, to enforce inclusive zoning policies, um, uh, supporting community land trusts, housing cooperatives, alternative ownership models even. That, that's what can help maintain affordability and prevent displacement. And all of this is part of the inclusion in the city. That's how we build for people, with people. So fostering this collaboration between stakeholders, for me, is absolutely crucial. Governments, the community organizations, the developers, the, the urban planners, and the residents, if we're not working together with them to find solutions, to, we need to balance the interests of different social classes obviously, and promote this inclusive de development. And do you have any examples of uh, cities where this dialogue actually happens and where some progresses have been made. Because that's also, let's say, the bad part of the conversation is that, okay, we are talking about those extremely relevant uh, approach, but where can people get inspiration from? Is there a place where we could find some more information about really, I won't say best practice, but, but good practices that could have the potential to be replicated elsewhere? We had a conversation recently with uh, Simone Mangili from a Climate Neutral City Alliance, and he was kind of sharing the, some practices that were implemented within uh, his network of city. But I would really be interested in knowing if some other cities are doing uh, in relevant work, uh, really relevant work at this kind of very social level. Actually, yes, there are I mean, now it sounds very niche as a, like to make cities for women or feminist cities or inclusive cities, but it's um, there's has been a lot of work. And I think one, one of the stark examples is the Women Friendly City Initiative in Vienna. Vienna started with gender mainstreaming in their urban policy already back in the 80s, I think. And I had the chance to live there. I had the chance to interview the people who are the head of the of the Frauenbüro, so Eva Keil and Ursula Bauer. Um, who are urbanists as well. And uh, their project, or it's 
more of a even on a city level but there are also a couple of projects like housing specifically designed by women so by architects and also consorting with with the women who are going to live there for women basically so in the project like we're talking about housing so architecturally speaking how to make uh, the design fit the needs of women different um, women with different needs at different ages different uh, family situations uh, single parents uh, women in their 80s women yeah so the project also focuses on enhancing safety accessibility and and inclusivity for women in public spaces like uh, correcting gender sensitive transportation options they once again really emphasizes community engagement to address the specific concerns of women. I think there's also the Safe Cities for Women program, which was also implemented by UN women in, in, in different cities globally, which also work towards preventing and, and um, responding to gender-based violence in urban areas to create safer environments for women and girls. Because once again, let's remember the, the numbers. It's one out of three women in the world that gets um sexually abused and that happens a lot in urban areas and i mean i think many european cities like including paris uh, barcelona with the super blocks uh, amsterdam they're also in, uh, implementing these solutions toward more inclusive mobility which is i think key to a more sustainable but also a more gender-friendly and inclusive infrastructure Stockholm did this uh, thing as well with the plowing so the snow plowing um, i don't know if you know about this uh, story No, I would love to hear it. Yeah, it's actually one of the most, it sounds like an anecdote, but it really is not. So basically they did a study in Stockholm, which is a highly snow-prone city, seeing where they, like, why did they have so many injuries happening, like, say, in a certain period of time where the snow was really dense. And the data showed that it was mostly women being in the hospital for these injuries, back injuries, or because they fell. It was also a lot of older women. So you can tell already that there's a gender, say, factor in there. And basically the snow removal was always starting with the roads. And the study also showed that these roads were mainly used by cars, cars mainly driven by men. So you had this gender disparity even in the snow plowing. So instead they simply shifted the priority and they targeted more the... the cycle paths, the food paths, the entries to daycares, which are more often used by women and children. And they had a much, much less rate of injuries actually in that year. So it's a very simple solution. It didn't cost anything. They simply switched. Yeah. And, and that was it. In Oslo also, I think it was like uh, the dockings uh, for like the bike sharing. They were also initially placed only in the center with all these officers that were once again, dominated by men. And then they started putting them in other areas as well, where you had uh, supermarkets, daycare, etc. So yeah, it's it's often very simple solutions <laughs> to make women and, and girls and, and other people also just um, more included in the city and feel like they're also part of it. It's, it's a term that is called placemaking, right? Mm -hmm. Like putting people before infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Thinking of how people actually use uh, the facilities that are offered to them and, and you take decisions based on this instead of conceiving like an ideal situation and, and just check how it works. And uh, so I think it's, it's also one of the really 
critical aspects of how to make the city more inclusive. Because if you, I would expect that if you build a park and that at the end of the day, it's occupied only by a certain kind of people and some other don't feel safe, children don't go, etc. That becomes quite a, quite a huge challenge. It's really like a failed uh, opportunity for more inclusivity within a certain community. And then on the other hand, it's also opening the door to racist uh, people to just say, look, there there might be some issues at stake here. And, you know, it's it's also, it's extremely, let's say, extremely political. And uh, in the, the context we are living in, it's it's also important to, to just see how we can make sure that we become more, let's say, more inclusive and we are not dividing more the communities um, somehow. Yeah, I mean, as an expert myself, I, I really believe in the importance of once again, the stakeholder collaboration, the placemaking principles. For me, these are the best ways to really create cities that are inclusive, but also reflective of the needs and, and aspirations of the communities that live in this city. First of all, the stakeholder collaboration, like I said, it's totally essential in the development process of an urban planning. So it's engaging and involving the different stakeholders. So residents, local businesses, organizations, uh, government agencies, uh, community members, etc. And that can foster this meaningful participation and also create a platform for dialogue. And that's how you can make sure that, the, um, that their voices and perspectives are heard, but also considered. I think the main point is also that this sort of collaboration, it goes beyond mere consultations because a lot of the time we have this participatory uh, uh, planning processes where we, we would gather people but not take into account what they say. And I think it's a waste of energy and it's a waste of time. And we're not really empowering these stakeholders or these communities to actively contribute to the decision-making process. So that's why I always focus on the part of co-creation where the community members become active partners in designing and shaping their neighborhoods. So when you involve diverse stakeholders, when you um, involve different residents and really make sure that you're involving everyone. So you're, we're talking about differently able people, older uh, people, children. Uh, we're talking about diverse um, ethnic backgrounds. It, you really like going to tap into their local knowledge, into their lived experiences, into their unique insights and enable them to create more inclusive and responsive urban environments. If you make a public consultation only mm. online, it means that only a certain part of the population will be able to yeah. get online and fill exactly. the questionnaire. And uh, anybody who doesn't have the time or doesn't have the link or uh, doesn't speak well the language will never feel empowered to, to respond to this kind of, of survey. So it's important to get to the people and ask them kind of ask them what they, what they want. But, uh, but yeah. is it something that cities are willing to do? like really get to, to, to know their people? I mean, I would expect you to say yes, uh, of course. And uh, it's really part of, you know, this whole conversation with an energetic of uh, like trying to gather also good practice, best, uh, good ideas and, and uh, gets inspired by what other uh, people and organization do. Because I mean, usually we, we talk very much about energy indeed, but energy is part of the conversation really uh, when you talk about sustainability. I think I'm fairly positive about it. There are more and more cities talking about it. There are more and more cities who are uh, conducting uh, gender safety audits, who are, which is actually one of these tools uh, that maybe I, I should have um, 
talked about earlier, which involve conducting assessments to evaluate how safe and inclusive and how accessible an urban area is for all genders. So you're basically identifying the potential challenges and gaps in, in public services and, and so on. I think a lot of cities are trying to do their uh, part. I know that, like, these are like just simple examples, but... Um, the, the pedestrian paths have been built in, in Nantes, uh, France, were also part of a project that was supposed to make cities more inclusive. Uh, Vienna also retimed the traffic lights to, to give families with children more time to cross. Uh, we, a lot of cities are also removing sidewalk barriers to improve accessibility for older people, for people with wheelchairs, for parents with strollers. A lot more gender disaggregated data has been collected in different cities. We see a lot of cities also uh, using the gender budgeting, a gender sensitive budgeting for public investments. Um, I've seen this in Lyon, uh, France, in Andalusia, in Iceland, even in Australia, actually. It was a really, really good project. So there are a lot of solutions towards inclusive urban policymaking that are being seeked or being searched and, and um, yeah, still somehow I think the decision-making is um, not exactly what I'm afraid of is that it's often an afterthought and not really at, at the early stages of the of the urban development. But, yeah, I'll take it. It's still a, we're working towards something better, I'm sure. But um, there's more and more talk about it. Yeah, that's why your advocacy work is so important to just uh, make sure that uh, inclusive intersectional feminist cities are mainstream and not uh, only niche. And uh, I know you are also a really sought after uh, keynote speaker. So what are the kind of key messages or insights that you aim to convey to your audience regarding uh, gender inclusive urban practices and also the importance of equity uh, in your development? Well, in my keynote speeches or even lectures, what I speak about when I talk about gender-inclusive urban practices and I actually focus on the part inclusive because it goes beyond gender. I really want to, to people to understand that it's really in, we need an intersectional approach. So we need to move beyond the mayor of gender equality. This is not a men versus women approach. This is not, um, we are not going to build cities for women. And in fact, cities so-called for women, uh, are um, better for everyone. But that's not, yeah. My, my key message uh, revolve around raising awareness about the significance of inclusivity. So not only gender inclusivity, but really the inclusivity of, of people beyond gender and, and also talking about these aspects of, of mental health, the aspect of children in the city, of uh, differently able people, of lower income people, like, it's not only, I mean, yes, there's this whole work of dispelling the gender biases in urban planning and design. So we are going to inspire action by talking about also the older data that has been gathered. But we have much less data when it comes to racialized people, when it comes to people from certain neighborhoods like the, the HLM in France or when um, there's also a much it's a very difficult exercise when, for example, in, in a lot of countries in Europe, we're not even able to collect data. Uh, related to race or ethnicity, etc. But I definitely emphasize that gender inclusivity or inclusivity in general is not an afterthought. It's an integral part of creating sustainable, livable and inclusive cities. I stress the need for collaboration, for knowledge sharing, uh, for cross-sectoral partnerships, 
to drive this positive change because once again it is not only on us urban planners and it's not only on architects it's not only on the policymakers or the residents to make their neighborhoods better that's not how it works it's like i said in the beginning it's about healthcare it's about access to to education access to housing access to well lit streets uh uh, to mobility, to safer neighborhoods. And um, I think ultimately my goal <laughs> or, yeah, humbly is is really just to inspire more people and more organizations to actively contribute to create the cities that would prioritize equity, that would prioritize inclusivity and the well-being of all residents and not just those who can afford living in the instant city. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's uh, definitely uh, a great uh, agenda that you have, and I'm sure many of the listeners today will have been very, very inspired by by what you say. So, can you now, just like as we are wrapping things up, uh, can you can you just share something that really makes you hopeful and that you are really that you kind of are looking forward to seeing as well? It can be uh, like a, an international agenda or really a project that you may be working on uh, what is driving you at uh, really at the moment and uh, in the, the months to come I do have uh, a project <laughs> but I'm gonna keep it um, yeah it's a bit on the side I'm working on it on the side because I'm also a full-time fellow and and um, yeah I have um, a lot of projects I publish a lot I think what gives me hope is definitely to see the um, interest and the passion of people for this topic I see a lot more younger architects and younger urban planners, um, a lot of them are women, but uh, not only, who are reaching out to me and telling me, your work is amazing. We would love to do more of, of that. And how do you get this and that? And I even had people contacted me for like professors who are teaching courses on, on urban governance or urban planning. And they asked me like, oh, what are your references? And how can we make the students also more sensitive to the topic of gender inclusivity and, and inclusivity in general, um, actually? And uh I think that's already a really good step <laughs> that we're having more people being interested in it, that we're also having probably or hopefully more academic courses about it to engage the students, but also in, engage different stakeholders. I also had a corporate reach out to me and say, we think diversity and inclusion is, is really important. It's not only trendy, but how can you help us <laughs> to really implement it in our projects? Yeah, it's it's really the when you assess sustainability, you have uh, usually this kind of uh, uh, ESG criteria, environmental, social, and governance. And what you do is really address this kind of social and governance aspect of sustainability. And I think it will raise more and more interest in the in the years to come. And uh, that uh, is uh, really so inspiring. And uh, I I really would like to recommend our listeners to uh, connect with you on LinkedIn because you publish, you have like an amazing profile where you publish for free for everyone, a lot of resource and food for thought. And, uh, and yeah, that is definitely noticeable. And uh, I'm really happy whenever I see one of your posts because I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to learn something today. So, so, so yeah, I would definitely encourage uh, anybody to check uh, your profile on, on, on LinkedIn and, and also listen to the previous podcast we did on inclusive cities and uh, also inclusive energy after all because uh, energetic is about the people who really are committed to uh, to making uh, the world uh, a better place uh, for everyone whatever their background any last thoughts you would like to to share with us today safa 
Not really. I think you said it all and you, um, yeah, thanks a lot for your words. It was really my pleasure to discuss this topic with you. And I, I really, really hope that this conversation and the more conversations we have, that they would spark further dialogue and, and also inspire positive action towards more inclusive and equitable cities. Thank you so much, Safa, and have an excellent rest of the week. Thank you, Marion. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.